I'm here with uh, Emily Stimson in Steubenville. We're at your house here. And um, we have some pictures on our blog of, of your home. But maybe you could describe your uh, your ground floor here and what, you, what you're thinking behind what you put, put together here. Yeah. Well, I have a, it's a 1915 Craftsman home that I've spent probably the past eight years remodeling. Uh, and what I, what I wanted was a home that expressed who I was, you know, and I love beautiful things, and I love my faith, and I love just simplicity, and so I've tried, and that's one of the great things about the craftsman style, is it's a very simple, beautiful style with woodwork, and... Tell us more about what I haven't... Craftsman? <laughs> <laughs> uh, there was a whole movement in the early part of the 20th century called the Arts and Crafts Movement, or somebody mm. you hear referred to as Craftsman, and it was like a backlash against the Victorian, decorating mm. movement, which was like lots of papri and frou-frou, oh, right. and you know, there was knickknacks everywhere, right. and doilies, and lace, and pictures, yeah. and uh, the crafts movement strove for simplicity, and clean lines, um, I just found a lot of beauty in what was natural. And it led to Art Deco? Um, Art Deco was a little bit, uh, sort of before and after that, it spanned another time, Art Deco oh. was more modern, um, okay. so you have sort of the Beaux Arts at the end of the 19th century. Mm -hmm. What I understand of it, and then Art Deco through the 30s, where things got a lot more modern, and you have chrome, and you moved into the modern era. So, craftsmen, you're going to find more like 1915 through 1925, 30, okay. and then the Art Deco will sort of overlap with that and push forward. Okay. So you have a, an old typewriter here. I, I do. I have a typewriter, and that's actually probably the favorite toy of every small child who comes in my house because they get to bang on it. And I have a beautiful picture of Mary nursing Jesus, and that was actually painted by an artist who owned the house before me, um, Jim Langley. I uh, drew that, and I love that Mary because she just looks very strong and motherly, and just, you know, a very strong feminine woman. And I have quotes from my favorite books framed over the mantle. And what else do I have? Do you have more books? Do you have a bigger library? I do, upstairs in my office. Okay. So that's where most of the books are. The books yeah. down here, kind of yeah. for the pretty. So. <laughs> and you uh, describe your work for us. You're a stay-at-home writer. <laughs> yeah, I'm a stay-at-home writer. I wish I were a stay-at-home mom, but I'm a stay-at-home writer. Um, yes, I write for the Catholic Press. So I write. I have a contributing editor for our Sunday Visitor, a columnist for Lay Witness, blogger for Catholic Vote. I write a lot for Franciscan University, do some work for the St. Paul Center. And then I do books, both my own books, and I help other people out with, with their books. I also do Bible studies. So. Oh, do you, do you lead Bible studies? Right. I write them. Okay. <laughs> I write them. Yeah. I'll let others lead them. But no, I have a series of Bible studies out for teenage girls that Stacy mentioned I did together. And then I also ghostwrite some other Bible studies. And to be a ghostwriter, that means like someone would talk to you and then you put it down on paper. How does that connection work? It's different every time. Uh, some people, I'm working for academics mm -hmm. or priests who've done dissertations and want to turn it into something that normal people can read, right. but they can't really write for normal people. So I call myself a translator in that case. I translate from academic ease into normal people speak. Okay. Sometimes I interview people and get their stories down. Uh, sometimes I take a manuscript that needs a lot of work um, mm -hmm. and fill in the blanks and rewrite it for, for the author. It's mm -hmm. just different depending on the different needs. And did you uh, study that? 
<laughs> no, but not really. I studied uh, political science, English, and history as an undergraduate. So a little bit, I did a lot of writing. I did a lot of writing as an undergraduate. And then I did graduate work in political theory at Johns Hopkins and theology at Franciscan. So it's been a hodgepodge of stuff. Right. And you're working on a, a new book. Tell us about that. I am. Uh, I'm mostly done with it. We're just getting ready. We're gearing up to start promoting it. Uh, the hope is that it'll be released at the end of August, early September. It's called These Beautiful Bones, An Everyday Theology of the Body. And I'm calling it the Non-Sex Theology of the Body book. It's about uh, all the other bits of life you know, that we live in as a body and how understanding what the body is and what it means to be a man or a woman to be a gift translates into friendship and work and how we eat to dress and pray and use technology. So just looking at, I mean, really what the sacramental worldview is and how we take that and apply it to every area of our life. And bones? I mean, that doesn't sound like Emily Simpson. That actually takes, the title takes its name from the first and last chapters of the book which are about the Bone Church, the Capuchin Bone Church oh, in right, Rome. Right. Have you been in? I haven't been. Oh, you got to go. It <laughs> is, I call it the shrine to theology of the body. Some really? monk hundreds of years ago didn't know that's what he was building. But yeah. uh, I went in it last summer, exactly, right about this week last mm -hmm. year. And I was getting ready to write the book. And was so profoundly moved by what I saw. My roommate and I were there together. And I think we spent, there's just seven little rooms, not maybe just a little bit bigger than the first floor of my house altogether. Uh, and we probably spent an hour and a half in there just weeping with the beauty and the mm. holiness and the reverence that you could see for the body mm. in the way that the bones have been placed and the understanding of the redemption of the body that the architect of the chapels brought to what he did. Um, it's really the sacrament, sacramental worldview in bones. Could you describe it maybe for our listeners uh, what it looks like? Yeah, it's going to sound morbid, <laughs> which it strikes some people as morbid. It does. You, uh, you walk in first, there's a wonderful museum that you go through now. They've just redid it that gives you some insight to the history of the Capuchins and what they did for the church and who they were. So it gets you in the mood to, you know, to walk into these little chapels. And they're, they're crypt chapels, so they're beneath the larger church of the Capuchins in Rome. And when you first walk in, um, you'll see signs on the floor, and there's, they're a memento mori. And in seven different languages, let's see if I can remember the exact quote, um, it says something to the effect of what we are now, you once will be, what you are now, we once were. Mm. And what it's referring to is the bones of some 4,000 monks that mm. are in that chapel. Um, the bones have been stacked into walls. They've been mm. formed into medallions that adorn the walls. Mm. They've been turned into chandeliers. Uh, you have, I know it sounds so creepy and macabre, but it's not. Oh, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's well, you know, it used to be one of the most popular tourist sites in Rome. Everybody oh. went there. The lines would be wrapped around the oh. corner. Uh, and then it fell out of use, but it was very popular for people to go in and pray. And it's beautiful, and that's the hard thing to explain, is it sounds creepy. Right. But it's beautiful. You see mm. the beauty of these bodies, and I think the, the greatest beauty is our bodies are all temples of God. Right. And they're temples of God now in life, and all of these bodies have been literally formed into a temple of God in death. Yeah. Um, 
they're part of something beautiful yeah. in death, just as they were part of something beautiful in life, and as their souls are part of something beautiful now in heaven, we hope, for the monks. Right. Um, and it points to the reunion of body and soul. So as you move through these seven chapels, yeah. you see the bones stacked in various architectural yeah. designs, but you also see the monks themselves standing in various positions. Sometimes they're in the position of the work they did, you know, maybe as a priest or a far, you know, if they were a farming monk, they're just doing the various things they did in life. Sometimes they're resting. Um, and I think rest. they're resting, <laughs> perpetually resting, they're laying back in perpetual rest. None of them were moving. Pirates of the Caribbean. Pirates of the Caribbean in Rome. It'll be the base tourist attraction again. Uh, no, but it's it shows us how through the ordinary acts of life, through our work, through our vocations, through love, we become holy. You know, that's where sanctification takes place. Sanctification is not just what happens in church, it's what happens every moment of our lives. Uh, the sacraments, you know, are, go with us when we leave church and they come to us, you know, through our vocations as we live our lives. Um, and that makes us holy, that makes our bodies holy. You know, it's not just our souls that are supposed to be beautiful, it's not just our souls that are beautiful, it's our bodies that are beautiful. And when you see the beauty of the body, when you see the dignity of the body, when you see what it expresses, you know, it changes the way you see the world. And so as you move through those rooms, you're encountering these monks, and you get to the last room, and there's a beautiful painting of the resurrection of Lazarus. Mm. And it just reminds us that it doesn't end there. You know, the bones is not the end for us. Oh. Like body and soul will be reunited. We will be one again someday. Yeah. So it's I highly recommend every person make yeah. a pilgrimage to Rome for the bone church alone. I think right. it's, it just has a beautiful, powerful witness. And we're so afraid of death these yeah, days. Yeah. They were much more familiar with death than comfortable with it a hundred years ago when people were flocking to the bone church. And today we shiver at the thought of our own immortality. We all want to be young. We all want to be beautiful. Right. But those bones are beautiful. What, uh, what does theology of the body tell us about the aging process? Because we do have like a cult of youth and beauty. And what would you tell like, an older person about that? About the what does the theology of body say to them? <laughs> I think it says a couple of things. Uh, the most obvious for me is the, the body expresses the person. It's one of the basic tenets of theology of the body. So our physical body expresses our invisible spirit, um, and who we are, who we become, how we live, it expresses itself on the body. You know, one way or another, one day or another, it writes itself on our face. So if we've loved, yeah. if we've suffered, if we've born the children. You know, the work we've done, everything in our person right. shows up in lines, whether smile lines or uh -huh. frown lines or stretch marks. And so when you look at a person who's older, you know, their face is beautiful if they've lived a beautiful life, if mm. they have a beautiful spirit. That's why people could look at Mother Teresa right. and say, oh, she's the most beautiful woman I've ever seen. Right. And right. it's because the beauty of her soul radiated outwards. Right. Um, the Alexandria body also tells us that Know, through the sufferings of the body, you know, we're able to make a gift of ourselves to God, to others, to the church. And so I think there can be great comfort for us as we age and our bodies mm -hmm. don't work quite the way we'd like them to, to know that you know, that's not a curse, you know, mm -hmm. that if we understand it properly, mm -hmm. that's a gift. And when given yeah. in love, you know, it makes the world a more beautiful place right. and blesses others and blesses us. Right. So we can see maybe the history of the service of a person in their body, how they've served others, or 
something like that. Can you tell us about some of the other chapters in your book, like like bringing out the theology body and very common, ordinary stuff? Yeah, well, you know, there's actually, a, I have chapters, and I have these little mini chapters that I didn't have a whole chapter's worth of stuff to say about. Uh, but one of them is, is the house and how our houses should be an expression uh, of the person. Um, I talk about how our clothes, you know, should mm-hmm. express who we are, both in our dignity, our masculinity, and femininity. I talk about work and the importance mm-hmm. of working with our hands. You know, modern work has become so disembodied, so we sit in cubicles mm-hmm. and we produce reports. You know, we don't make a chair anymore, and it's it's our eyes and our fingers doing the work, or our minds, but our backs don't hurt at the end of the day. And mm-hmm. there's a, there's actually some. I bring in a lot of sociological evidence in that chapter that links depression with the lack of the use of body, the body at work. People who tend to have the most satisfaction are people who are using their bodies to do something mm. productive and creative. Um, talk about spiritual mother and fatherhood, all sorts of things. I always hear that about gardening. Let's talk about how fulfilling gardening is. Are you the same? I know you have a small garden out there. Um, well, I like gardening. I like painting houses better and stripping wood <laughs> and doing those things. My, my great-grandma, God bless her heart, she was this wonderful, faithful German woman. She never quite got when people were depressed. And obviously there's depression that's depression. And then there's just sort of modern mm-hmm. and we and sadness and navel-gazing. Mm-hmm. And she would say, I don't know how people have time to be depressed when there's floors to be swept. You right. know? And I think in that, there was a really wise sort of insight that when we're busy in our bodies, mm-hmm. you know, when we're doing something creative and productive, there's not as much time to sit around and think about what's wrong with our life or why we're right. so sad or oh poor me. So yeah, I think there's there's a lot of therapeutic effort. And so I do talk about that. We can't all be carpenters, right. but we can all have a garden. We can right. all organize right. our closets. We can, right. you know, right. paint a room. So there's lots of ways to find do productive work with the body, even though the modern economy doesn't allow for that. Yeah, I never think of it. I think too of athletics. Uh, there's a there's a pleasure in that. Sometimes I thought about that while swimming or something. That you can even think about it in terms of giving glory to God. That you know maybe I've developed a skill or there's some coordination there or something uh, that we work on and develop and how I can praise God. And uh, you know, I actually thought about. Um, bicycling and they they warned it wasn't from a theological perspective but they were talking about how a guy can fall into bicycle lust meaning <laughs> the latest components you know carbon fiber this and that but there is something about like with bicycling i think maybe the appeals kind of the men is that you got that melding of the mechanical and the human you know, women seem to like the horses bike guys like the cars the things <laughs> and uh it does kind of express them sometimes in a you're going to make this machine do what you want it to do uh-huh. and dominate it, you know, kind of <laughs> Very masculine. Make order to the world. But now, the craftsman style, like looking at your uh, fireplace, and it, um, I wouldn't have picked that fireplace out for you. I, <laughs> it's kind of like hard lines and it's, rugged. It's and, dark and rugged, yeah. yeah. I went with the house. It's. I always, houses, I think, have a certain way they're supposed to look. You know, uh-huh. There's a, at this 
this fireplace sort of goes with the, the rest, of the, the rest yeah. of the house. But yeah, if I get a hankering for another house someday, I probably would have it be a little more, less wood and more airy and light filled. But for now, I'm here. So that's the problem, you guys. I'm, I'm pretty much done with this house. So I'm like, oh, I kind of want another one to work on. <laughs> now, you do like to entertain here. Tell us, you have like a, kind of a formal party, dinner parties, or? I uh, have a lot of different parties. Um, for years, we used to do just a dinner every Thursday night with lots of my friends and their children. Mm -hmm. But everyone's at the point now where there's so many kids mm -hmm. that uh, there were, we actually were running out of room in the house soon. There would be 50 kids for to 20 adults. So wow. when that's the ratio, it gets a little scary. Um, mm -hmm. No, we have dinner parties over here all the time. I always have an annual Christmas party. Um, we have. It's our Christmas cocktail party, but all the kids come too, and the kids help me decorate my tree since uh, I don't have any children. I, it's no fun to decorate a tree without little kids, so right. you've never decorated a tree until you decorated one with 40 children all at one time. <laughs> um, and so we do that every year. We have Easter and uh, Thanksgiving, a lot of holidays uh, that people can't get home for. I love to be able to have this be home. I want it. I want all my friends to right. feel you know, comfortable. Right. I want their kids to feel comfortable here. So I've got to make the house as kid friendly. Possible. And you reach out like to single friends and with kids gathers like that. You bring out the china and the nice wine. I'll, I'll bring out the china for the little kids. I've yet to have a kid break the china. I've had parents break things, but never the children. The children always know it. Emmys, it's special. Um, yeah, we do single. I mean, single friends, married friends. I'm a big proponent of single people and married people mixing as much as possible. I don't think mm -hmm. it's healthy to sort of segment ourselves off into mm -hmm. little demographic groups and not interact. That's a very modern. No idea, right, and it's right. very artificial because we have right. so much to learn from each other in so many ways we can yeah. bless each other. So yeah. I try to mix it up as much as possible. Yeah, I would think too. It's like I know sometimes talking to moms, like in a family situation setting, um, I can't have more than like a one minute conversation because, you know, <laughs> so like a single woman could be kind of maybe a, a, a presence to like a married mom in a, in a longer way, kind of thing, in a more. I don't want to say generous wife, but uh, yeah, we make great friends because we bring no we bring no small children with us and two hands, so we can <laughs> we can take care of extra children. Yeah. It's been so long since I've had conversations with some of my friends where there's not at least one child making right. loud noise. Yeah. I don't know what it's like to end a conversation with my married friends that doesn't end in a shriek of "Oh my goodness, I have to go!" And <laughs> click, and yeah, there's wild crying in the background. I'm like, okay, yeah. then we'll move on. So it's you learn to adjust, and it's been a blessing to me because if I ever do end up having a family of my own. Own, mm -hmm. I'll know so much more and be such a better wife and mother for how, what I've learned from my friends. Yeah. And um, yeah, I'm also, I just got back from Portland where I went out to help a friend who just had a new baby and mm. spent the week cooking meal for her family every night, meals for her family and holding the baby and holding the two-year-old and cuddling with all the children. Wow. And so single friends are good for that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> now you live in a little Catholic uh, ghetto here, right? So it's, like <laughs> <laughs> it's a ghetto, that's for certain. <laughs> uh, no, it's a wonderful little community. It's uh, a lot of university professors live in my neighborhood, a lot of students, other families that are here to homeschool. So you have like Scott Hahn on your, sh your yeah. street here? Yep, Scott is just four doors up for me, and yeah. Pat Lee is at the end of my block. Dr. John Crosby is right down the street, so it's Chris Paget, John Bergsma. What other little? I always feel like I should do one of those Catholic celebrity maps yeah. where people come to Stephen, but you don't they go to Hollywood and see where Brad and Angelina live, thinking, "Oh, this is where Scott lives. I could probably, you know, make him in, buy some dresses with it." Yeah. So. Yeah.